0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to Weekends. We're your hosts, Anna Kasparian, Nando Vila, Kale Brooks on the ones and twos playing the funky beats. And uh, we're going to have an awesome guest today, Dean Baker, an economist, and uh, someone who's really an expert on any economic-related question you could possibly ask him. We'll be joining us later in the show. I'm super excited to, to have him on. Uh, Nando, I remember booking him um, when I was a guest booker and never like, I. this is like early years, 2007, 2008, listening to his answers on economic questions and not really fully grasping what he was talking about. Now I'm excited to be able to like ask him questions yeah. about so many different things. You shared a crazy story today regarding cryptocurrency and China. I think, you know, maybe we can ask him about that.
1: Definitely. In addition
0: to, you know whole host of other issues today.
1: I don't want to claim credit for that because Kale shared it and I don't want to, I don't want to do Kale <laughs> erasure.
0: My but bad, I had read my it, bad. Sorry, but, Kale.
1: Yeah, it's okay. I mean, it's fun to erase Kale, but uh, yeah, he shared it in the chat to be fair. But yeah, um, definitely got to ask him about that because it seems like big news. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's always been the, the threat to cryptocurrencies that governments, Fundamentally, on some fundamental level, cannot allow cryptocurrencies to exist. Like one of the things, the two monopolies that governments need to have in order to survive are monopolies on violence and currency. And uh, if you give up one of those, then the state kind of evaporates. So, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to ask him about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, AOC's moment on the House floor yesterday in regard to the mm. Iron Dome funding bill. A lot to unpack there. Nando, what do you have coming up for your decode?
1: I'm talking about Haiti uh, and the migrant situation at the border and the situation back in Haiti as well. Um, a lot of ins, a lot of outs. I mean, it's, it's a really horrible situation. And um, yeah, yeah you will be surprised that the Democratic Party uh, and the Joe Biden administration are not handling it too well.
0: Yeah, I have to say, this was a tough week in regard to the Democratic Party disappointing pretty much everyone. <laughs> I mean, just like the weakness, the incompetence, the cruelty and brutality at the border, there's a lot to get into there. And um, in my decode segment, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, first of all, the outcome of the Nabisco workers' strike, but more importantly, this ongoing trend of mandatory unemployment. How did we get here? Uh, and, you know, it's something that labor fought back against uh, and succeeded back in the day. And so uh, maybe we can get some solutions to make sure that people aren't being squeezed out of every free moment they have so they can provide more and more labor to companies that don't really respect them (laughs) or treat them well. So we'll talk about that later in the show. Uh, But why don't we get started uh, with that? House vote yesterday, which was uh, obviously incredibly disappointing, but AOC came out as really the headline of that entire situation. So... uh The House of Representatives ended up approving $1 billion for Israel's Iron Dome defense system after all. Now, I say after all because earlier in the week, progressives succeeded in blocking it as a provision in the stopgap measure that's meant to fund the government up through December of 22. Now, since progressives succeeded in blocking it, House Democrats decided to bring forward a standalone bill that would offer $1 billion in funding to the Iron Dome in Israel. And since that has bipartisan support, meaning that Republicans would, of course, vote in favor of that bill as well, progressives had far less leverage. Now, the House cleaned, uh, or I'm sorry, the House cleared the House, I'm sorry, the measure cleared the House in a bipartisan vote of 420. To nine, eight Democrats and one Mm. Republican voted against the funding for the missile defense system. Two other Democrats, Hank Johnson of Georgia and Representative Alexandria Ocasio Cortez of New York, voted present. So we're going to get to AOC in just a second, but I do want to provide just a few names or all the names of people who actually voted against the funding bill. You have that one Republican representative, Thomas Massey of Kentucky. The other eight Democrats who voted against it include, uh, Ilhan Omar, of course, Rashida Tlaib. We'll get to her as well in a minute. Ayanna Pressley, Corey Bush, Andre Carson, Marie Newman, and Shui Garcia. Oh, and a- a- also, uh, Rahul, Raul Grijalva, uh, of Arizona. So they those did. are the ones who've voted against it um and look aoc changed her vote first it was a no vote and then she changed it mm. to present and then you saw videos of her crying on the house floor while being embraced by other democratic lawmakers let's watch
2: designated by mr lawson Florida, to pursue it to house 8, and for the house that Mr. lawson will vote nay on on house Resolution 483 amendments he votes nay
0: So, you know, you see her, you know, crying and being embraced on the corner. Um, So Nando, I'm going to let you handle it (laughs) first in terms of commentary. I talked about this on TYT last night, but I'm curious what you think
1: well i'll start with the fact that just this bill was able to sail through i mean it's 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 depressing because like you see like oh my god you know the the progressives they were able to block this thing in the continuing resolution and then um in like record time they just like they can you know like this just like the yeah. bill happens and it sails right through it's like it, it just goes to show what kind of stuff sails through congress and what kind of stuff gets um gridlocked in congress um that you know anything that helps the american people yeah that doesn't that doesn't sail through um funding another country's missile defense system uh that sails through uh it's it that aspect of it is totally depressing uh the aoc thing i mean i there's there's no there's no way to sugarcoat it i mean yeah tax the rich in order to fund the iron dome i mean what a week she's had just i i i find it to be a not just a cowardly decision, which it is, um, you know, there is some political calculation to to it, you know, that that she uh, thinks like, oh, well, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, Israel supporters in my district and certainly in New York state. And if I ever want to run for Senate or governor, um, uh, you know, this this vote might come back to haunt me and blah, blah, blah. Um, But I find it hard to believe that anyone who would be dissuaded from voting for aoc because of a no vote on the iron dome um would be like oh look no she voted president no she's good on israel like
2: right there's just like you know like
1: there's just no there's no world in which like some other democrat who's running against her is just going to take out like a much more maximalist position on israel and uh and no one like no israel supporter actually believes that aoc is an ally so the only thing she achieves by doing that is to make yourself look pathetic um, by not just changing your vote at the last second, but then crying on the, on the house floor. I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: You're a congressperson, you know, like get it together. And uh, you know, it just makes you look um, unbelievably weak, cowardly, pathetic. I mean, like just all bad words that you can associate with. There's no benefit for it. You know, like, you have yeah. to, on some level, you have to stick to your guns and people respect that, even if they disagree with a specific thing. Um, right. There's a broader yeah. point to be made, but that's my mm-hmm. immediate reaction to the AOC thing. It's like, what are you doing? I mean, especially after you do this whole charade in the Met Gala with the dress, you know, like this kind of quote-unquote radical act. Um, and then when push comes to shove in, in the halls of power, you act like a total coward. So I, I, I don't know how, there's no way to defend her in this. There's just no... I don't know. I, I don't I, I like don't like to do the AOC bashing that others like to do, but like this one is just like it's indefensible. There's nothing you can do to defend it.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, look, I, I agree with you, and I know you have a broader point, and it's actually an excellent broader point. Hold on to that thought because I want you to to share it. But you know, with AOC, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, and I love that you put it in the context of the whole Met Gala situation, right? Because It goes to the argument that I was trying to make. I don't know if I made it um, in an articulate way, but I was trying to make a point about how she's a powerful member of Congress. Now, I get that she's one member of Congress, and so people try to minimize her power in that way, but she's a household name. I mean, she could get a lot done just by using the bully pulpit. And to be sure, there have been instances of her flexing her power in that way that has been successful. But more importantly, like here, here's a recent example of her doing something that I thought was powerful. And she should lean into this type of behavior more often. She decided to call uh, Joe Manchin out on his corruption, just brazenly, like just called him out. Right. And then that led to CNN's uh, Dana Bash asking him about his, you know, personal financial interests, his donors and all of that. And so for the first time, you have corporate Democrats on corporate media playing defense to progressives. So like you're a powerful person. Like if you want to raise taxes on the rich, then get it done. I know you can't do it unilaterally, but you're powerful enough to, to fight for it in a way that's far more substantive than wearing a dress at the Met Gala. And then immediately after that, you get this present vote. And look, that's the thing. You you hit the nail on the head, right? It's the... I don't mind members of Congress crying either on the House or Senate floor, right? Uh, There have been examples of them being emotional about something tragic that's happened while they're giving their, their speeches. That's totally fine. But in this context, not only did it appear weak when she changed her vote last minute from no to present then crying about it. It's almost as if it's like letting everyone know, I didn't want to do this, but I did it for political purposes. And that makes the situation worse. It makes it worse. Um, Anyway, like Jamal Bowman, he voted uh, in favor of the funding and he's not getting as much blowback because, and I, I completely disagree with his vote. His vote is in terms of like, like substantively it's worse right like in terms of like what it actually represents in the number of votes and all that stuff i get that but optics wise it looks worse for aoc that's the point i'm trying to make
1: well i mean the the jamal bowman thing kind of feeds in nicely to my broader point and that jamal bowman's like a good guy you know like we like jamal bowman he yeah. you know his heart's probably in the right place but you know the the idea that you know, from a left perspective, from like a socialist perspective, like the idea that all we have to do is elect more people whose heart is in the right place is misguided. Because if you elect, say, you elect two hundred uh, Congress people whose heart is in the right place, who are just a bunch of AOCs or Jamal Bowman's, um, mm-hmm. without a mechanism to enforce discipline, to enforce some sort of collective block discipline on them. Then it's useless. All these political the political calculations will always come into play in ways that on an individual level might make rational sense. Now, first of all, I disagree with the AOC thing that I think she made the wrong political calculation, but it was a cynical political calculation. Nonetheless, Um, I just think she made a mistake. Um, Jamal Bowman made a made a cynical political calculation as well um and he probably even played he probably played it better by just being like yeah fuck it i'll vote for it (laughs) you know like uh from from that kind of thing but without a mech without it without a party organization that is internally democratic but that once it's decided like can enforce can enforce um some sort of party discipline it's kind of useless you know like Mm -hmm. it, it really is so again i think that we we often get so invested in what's really in these people's hearts because we don't have that mechanism like that's why there's right. so much left speculation is like what does AOC really you know believe and I get it because and it's 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 a result of like the absence of any party mechanism to uh enforce her force her to take the right stands that when when we need them to um mm-hmm. but and 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 that's an But but the reality is that we should strive to build an institution where it wouldn't matter, like where we could have like these like, you know, awful Cretan power hungry Cretans in there um, that are bad people um, or don't have their heart in the right place, but are forced to act in the right way because of institutional power behind it. Um, You know, and I think that. Obviously, like with AOC, she's always going to be compared to to Bernie Sanders. She's op- just by the nature of their political trajectories. Um, and Bernie Sanders is a person that because of his long track record and his um, w- ability to actually get things done um, and uh, and his ability to sort of maintain a, a certain level of um, ethical purity in a way in the face of like this awful system has earned a, a significant amount of trust. But Bernie Sanders is not replicable. You know, we're seeing it right. with AOC, like she it's so easy to get sucked into, you know, the celebrity aspect of it, the, um, the realpolitik aspect of it, when Nancy Pelosi leans on you, it's really scary if you're some, you know, 29 year old congressperson um, in there for the first time, like all those things um are 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 weighing on her in a way that is causing her to do all this stuff and again it's because we don't have this institutional power to support her but also to discipline her you know it's it's, it goes it goes both ways like it gives her power by giving her a strong support base but also it's like if you deviate you're out you're out and you lose power um so it, it it And and that's what that's what that's what's really going on here. And again, I I understand the sort of obsessive reading of the tea leaves on AOC because she is so famous and has 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 been able to, for whatever reason, um, have have. That it factor that kind of causes you to become a known person. There's like hundreds of congressmen people n- never never even heard of. Um, sometimes people in their own district they don't know who the fuck their congressman <laughs> is. But a- everyone knows who AOC is. Um, yeah, yeah, So that 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 brings in a huge amount of scrutiny, but also it it, it brings with it this 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 desire to be like, is she going to be the next Bernie? Is she going to be this person that within this rotten system is going to be able to maintain a certain level of you know ethical kind of grounding that Bernie has that we know intrinsically, like we know, we know it, we we just know it because we see it. And because he's proven it time and time again, she has not. And because, because that model, because Bernie's kind of a unicorn and that model is not very replicable. What we really need to do is find a way to institutionally build uh, an organization that will both strengthen her, but also discipline her.
0: So I wanted to, Uh, get to look, I mean, we've been very critical, but uh, I do also want to show some love to members of Congress who did the right thing. And uh, since they did the right thing, they were then called anti-Semitic on the House floor. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, let me give you context before we go to Rashida Tlaib. Okay. So listen, we have been providing tens of billions of dollars to Israel. Okay, so I'll give you one example. In 2016, under the Obama administration, uh, $38 billion was appropriated to Israel for military funding. So there's military aid to the tune of $38 billion dollars. On top of that, we also provide, um, you know, some additional foreign aid yearly. So the United States has already provided $1.6 billion to Israel for Iron Dome batteries, interceptors, co-production costs and maintenance, according to a 2020 report from the Congressional Research Service. Um, and of that $1.6 billion, uh, last year, that was appropriated in 2020 during the pandemic, uh, they used ha- like $500 million of that toward the Iron Dome. And remember, the Iron Dome is Raytheon's all up in that. Right. So it's it's a way of also redistributing, um, you know, taxpayer money to private defense contractors. So it's not like, you know, you'll hear the fear mongering about, oh, you don't believe in Israel's right to defend itself or to exist or to do this or that. But like this was additional. This was like an extra little cherry on top. One billion in funding. Your dog is so freaking cute. That's exactly what we needed right now. I'm alone with her today. I'm
1: alone with her today. So she's in the room with me and she was just kind of like having a little nervous moment. So I just needed to give her a little love. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, with that context, why don't we go to uh, Rashida Tlaib and what she had to say on the House floor before she voted against this bill?
4: We cannot ta- be talking only about Israelis' need for safety at a time when Palestinians are living under a violent apartheid system and are dying from what Human Rights Watch has said are war crimes. We should also be talking about Palestinian need for security from Israeli attacks. We must be consistent in our commitment to human life, period. Everyone deserves to be safe there.
0: Everyone deserves to be safe there. I totally agree with what she had to say, uh, but not everyone agreed. Uh, Representative, I believe, Ted Deutsch, is that his first name, Uh, from Florida, uh, decided to go up after her and basically imply that she's anti-Semitic. Let's watch.
5: Mr. Speaker, we can have an opportunity to debate lots of issues on the House floor, but to falsely characterize... The state of Israel is consistent with those. Let's be clear. It's consistent with those who advocate for the dismantling of the one Jewish state in the world. And when there is no place on the map for one Jewish state, that's anti-Semitism.
0: I mean, but that was to be expected. And I just find it fascinating because Anytime a progressive has justified criticism toward a fellow democratic lawmaker, I mean, it's the worst thing yeah. he or she possibly do. But I mean, here you have Ted Deutsch on the House floor, say that Rashida Tlaib is anti-Semitic, that she's in line with anti-Semites. I mean, it's insane.
1: It's insane. Yeah. I mean, the, these people would never, you know, if the Iron Dome was just a kind of a defensive, you know, thing, they would never give Gaza an Iron Dome, you know, exactly. to intercept Israeli missiles when they when they, you know, <laughs> shoot it at them. Um, I mean, and and just the idea that, like, we have to pay for it. I mean, is, Israel has uh, socialized healthcare care, like as a human right, like they they Israeli citizens enjoy better health care than Americans. And we're paying for their fucking Iron Dome. I mean, it's like it's just like they could pay for it if they want their stupid Iron Dome, um, which has questionable uh, kind of um, worth in terms of like it actually working. Um, they can pay for it themselves. Like, why do we have to pay for it? It's so, it's so infuriating. And the, it, the fact that it just kind of sails through Congress, um, and it's, and it's not just, it's not just seen as kind of inevitable, but it's seen as like this, this, this almost like duty that we have. And it's, oh, it, totally. it's just, yeah, uh, it's, it's so, everything about it is so infuriating.
0: It is. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, We got to end that on a depressing note because it was a depressing vote and they got that funding through. Um, But why don't we look at the bright side in life and uh, remind everyone about the wonderful people over at Verso?
1: Yes, absolutely. You can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, including the Verso Comrade tote bag. Take that on your next date for as long as you're a subscriber. All memberships are 50% off for your first three months. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month, and if you join in September, you'll get these four books. Everything all the time everywhere. How we became postmodern by Stuart Jeffries. Everything and less. The novel in the age of Amazon by Mark McGurl. Revolution in Intellectual History by Enzo Traverso. And Work Without the Worker, Labor in the Age of Platform Capitalism by Phil Jones. Boom.
0: Damn. You are very good at that live read. Honestly. You know how to punch <laughs> it up. Uh, well, gotta punch it up. Gotta punch. It. People are saying you gotta punch it up. It's the art of the deal
1: the verso the verso comrade dope bag you, you bring that on your first date you all the ladies all the ladies with the verso comrade dope bag <laughs> i wear it when i go to the sauna steam room uh with melania we wear the we read our we read platform capitalism by phil jones
0: <laughs> oh my god the imagine that'd be amazing all right um well uh we now unfortunately have to move on to one of the more depressing stories uh that dominated headlines this week nando uh biden campaigned on being a decent human being someone who uh could really differentiate himself from donald trump's cruel brutal treatment of migrants at the border but this week proved otherwise take it away Mm.
1: Yep. Yeah. And this made me think about how one of the reasons why people find liberals so annoying is because they know that on some level, they are unprincipled hypocrites who like to moralize when out of power while being unbelievable cowards while in power. This is never more true than when it comes to immigration. Um, When Trump was president, how many lawn signs did you see in front of nice suburban houses that said, immigrants, welcome here. When Trump was in power, do-goody liberals like to yell about the kids in cages. Well, now that Democrats are in power, we get to learn just how welcome those immigrants really are. Beneath
6: this border bridge in Del Rio, Texas, a group of migrants grows by the hour. The men, women, and children, mostly from Haiti. Tonight, they number nearly 15,000, tripling in size since Wednesday, all waiting in near 100-degree heat, washing clothes in the Rio Grande and sleeping outside. For a chance to claim asylum.
1: Yep. Haiti has been in a deep, deep crisis in the wake of a presidential assassination, which was carried out by mercenaries working for an American firm, and a devastating earthquake that killed thousands of people. And now many of them are trying to come across the the border into the United States, where they were met with men on horses and whips.
7: (laughs) No, 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 no.
8: It is
6: AR in Mexico. No! Hey, you use your women? This is why your country because you use your women for
2: that. You go, go, that way.
1: Now the Biden policy towards these these asylum seekers has essentially been to deport them without a hearing, according to the Intercept. uh, Less than a year after entering office with vows to bring a new humanitarian approach to the nation's immigration system, the Biden administration is carrying out what could be the largest mass expulsion of would-be asylum seekers. In recent American history, virtually none of those being removed from the country, nearly all of whom are black, have received their day in court, nor will they under the administration's current plan. This is, of course, a violation of international law. Not that the U.S. really gives a shit about international law. At least it comes when it comes to their actions. But the legal rationale that they're using to deport these asylum seekers is something called Title 42. Again, from The Intercept, since 2016, DHS has developed, has deployed a series of policies and strategies that have vastly diminished the potential for families or individuals to seek asylum at the nation's ports. Under the most sweeping of those policies, known as Title 42, DHS has summarily expelled border crossing individuals from the country without a hearing, regardless of whether they are seeking asylum, a right enshrined under domestic and international law and without establishing whether being returned to their country of origin poses a risk to their safety. Ostensibly a public health statute, Title 42 was pushed through by Trump immigration advisor Stephen Miller over the objections of career public health professionals in March of 2020. So Title 42, the policy that the Biden administration is implementing, was designed by none other than Stephen Miller himself. Now watch White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki who liberal journalists have been embarrassingly fawning over for months, defend the administration's use of Title 42.
4: Now, anyone who is here before then may be eligible for temporary protected status. uh, And we're looking into that. People may be eligible for that. But right now, we also have to implement our laws uh, at the border. We also want to protect people, both in that community, but also migrants. One of the challenges, as we're all facing a pandemic here, is the gathering of so many people. We're still implementing Title 42, which means that we are going to send people out of the country who come in uh, as we implement that.
7: A COVID safety protocol. Exactly. But did you say that it's possible that that extension that applies to Haitians already here could apply to those coming across the border? Well, now.
4: Tony, it's already been extended uh, because of the turmoil on the ground. It was earlier this summer. That's something that the Secretary of Homeland Security and Secretary of State do look into. But again, as we look to this, the, the photos, not just the ones you referenced, but, but of all of these families and people under the bridges, we wanted to also take steps to implement our laws and to protect a lot of them from the spread of COVID as well.
1: Now, under Trump, 440,000 asylum seekers were deported without trial under Title 42. Under Biden, that number is 690,000 in less than one year. Now, in the wake of all this, the special U.S. envoy to Haiti, a guy named Daniel Foote, was so disgusted that he resigned.
9: The migrant crisis at the U.S. southern border sparked a dramatic diplomatic rebuke on Thursday as the U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti resigned in protest to what he called the inhumane treatment of thousands of Haitian refugees. In a blistering letter to U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, My diplomat State Daniel Foote said, quote, I will not be associated with the United States' inhumane, counterproductive decision to deport thousands of Haitian refugees and illegal immigrants.
1: Now, his resignation letter is quite remarkable and worth quoting extensively. He wrote, quote, Haitians need immediate assistance to restore the government's ability to neutralize the gangs and restore order through the national police. They need a true agreement, agreement across society and political actors with international support to chart a timely path to the democratic ele- selection of their next president and parliament. They need humanitarian assistance, money to deliver COVID vaccines and so many other things. But what our Haitian friends really want and need is the opportunity to chart their own course without international puppeteering and favorite candidates, but with genuine support for that course. I do not believe that Haiti can enjoy stability until her citizens have the dignity of truly choosing their own leaders fairly and acceptably. Last week, the U.S. and other embassies in Port-au-Prince issued another public statement of support for the unelected de facto prime minister, Dr. Ariel Henry, as interim leader of Haiti, and have continued to tout his political agreement over another broader, earlier accord shepherded by civil society. The hubris that makes us believe we should pick the winner again is impressive. This cycle of international political interventions in Haiti has consistently produced catastrophic results. More negative impacts to Haiti will have calamitous consequences not only to Haiti, but in the United States and our neighbors in the hemisphere. Now, the administration's response to Daniel Foote has been predictably disgusting. Hilariously, they essentially accused him of toxic masculinity and mansplaining. PBS's White House correspondent, Jamish Alsendor tweeted out, Quote, a senior Biden administration uh, official also claims Foote was a toxic personality and that Foote would often shot people down and cut people off. But the official also said Foote, a career foreign service member, was not facing any form of disciplinary action for the alleged actions. Now, it's worth reminding everyone that the, that the Jovenel Moise, who served as president of Haiti since 2017, was assassinated in a commando raid in his own home. Well, go back to one of Daniel Foote's complaints in his resignation letter. He said, last week, the U.S. and other embassies in Port-au-Prince issued another public statement of support for the unelected de facto prime minister, Dr. Ariel Henry, as interim leader of Haiti, and have continued to tout his political agreement over another broader earlier accord shepherded by civil society. The hubris that makes it believe we should pick the winner again is impressive. Now, perhaps the reason why Daniel Foote was so opposed to American support for the unelected Ariel Henry is that it looks like he was involved in the assassination plot.
4: Joining us now from New York is Kim Ives. He's the editor at Haiti Liberté. Thanks for joining us. Now, it was stunning enough, the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse. Now you have these allegations against the prime minister by the prosecutor who was just sacked. Are these allegations against Henri credible, that he could have been complicit in that murder?
3: Well, they seem pretty credible. It's coming from the metadata of the phone uh, that he uh, had. Uh, He spoke to uh, the guy who told the triggermen to shoot President Moise. Um, He spoke. uh, This was a guy called uh, Joseph Felix Badiot, who is a fugitive. Uh, But uh, Badiot called him at uh, uh, 4.03 and 4.00. Uh, 20 a.m., three hours after the uh, killing of Moise. So this is pretty damning. He's got a lot of explaining to do about that. And that's what uh, Bedford Claude was calling him in to talk about. Uh, But now he fired Bedford Claude as well as uh, probably the justice minister and the head of the council of ministers as well. So it's a a real uh, power struggle going on.
1: Now, it would not be entirely surprising if some elements of the United States government at least knew about the plan to murder Moïse and gave tacit approval of it. That's because the United States has been deeply involved in Haitian affairs for well over 100 years. I think most Americans, and even a good chunk of American leftists, would be surprised to learn that the United States occupied Haiti militarily for the two decades between 1915 and 1934, essentially to let American financial interests plunder the country.
5: To counter this influence, the U.S. sponsored a New York-run group of investors to buy out the only national bank in Haiti, which would effectively put the nation's commerce under American investor control. In December of 1914, the U.S. military seized the Haitian government's gold reserve and transferred it to the investors' bankers, as well as slightly assist jean Fabran Gilliam in becoming president in February the following year. Sam turned his presidency into a dictatorship five months later, and ordered the execution of 167 political rivals, all of which were from the predominant families with German connections. Sam was killed by a mob in Port-au-Prince as soon as they learned of the executions. The United States regarded what had turned into an anti-American revolt against Sam as a threat to American business interests in the country, and sent forces to occupy the nation immediately. U.S. President Woodrow Wilson ordered 330 U.S. Marines to occupy Port-au-Prince on July 25th. Wilson also aimed to rewrite the Haitian Constitution as a ban foreign ownership of land, but he wanted to replace it with one that guaranteed American financial control over the markets. As soon as U.S. Marines landed on the island, various groups fought against them and the later established island government for years. This period is referred to as the Kalkau Wars, named after the band of peasant militia that largely made up these rebellious bands. It wasn't until the last Marines left in 1934 that these skirmishes and battles finally settled. In September of 1915, The U.S. Senate ratified the Haitian American Convention, a treaty granting the United States security and economic oversight of Haiti for a 10-year period, and the U.S. representatives had total veto power over the Haitian government. Within six weeks of the occupation, the U.S. government seized control of Haiti's custom houses, including the banks and the national treasury. Under governmental control, a total of 40% of Haitians national income was designated to repay debts to American and French banks and would control Haitian external finances until 1947.
1: 40% of Haiti's national income was used to pay back debts to American and French banks. That is crazy. But lest you think that that is all ancient history, all in the past, the kind of thing that happened in black and white documentaries, well, The reality is that the United States has been directly involved in Haiti till this very day.
9: But even after the occupation, the United States continued to play a role in the internal affairs of Haiti. In 1957, the U.S. government threw its support behind a Haitian dictator – Francois Duvalier. Duvalier and his successor, aka his son Jean-Claude, ate up aid from the United States in exchange for their strong anti-communist stand at the height of the Cold War. Haitian uprisings ended Duvalier Jr.'s rule and led to Haiti choosing its democratically elected leader, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, in 1990. But within a year, Aristide's government was toppled by a coup. Not only was one of the leaders of the coup on the CIA's payroll but the U.S. had set up and funded the Haitian military and National Intelligence Service, which both played key roles in the coup. Ousted Aristide returned to his second presidency in 2001 and again was forced out of office by a coup that he claimed the U.S. had orchestrated. And after that, President Obama's cabinet pressured a Haitian presidential candidate to withdraw in 2010. We see reports coming out of various
2: civil society organizations saying that Haitians have lost faith in the electoral process because it doesn't reflect their actual concerns.
1: So the United States has spent well over a century century raping Haiti on behalf of financialist interests, making Haiti the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Mired in a deep political and social crisis ravaged by armed gangs and with basically no infrastructure, it was that context in which natural disasters hit, one
7: right after the other. The damage here, unimaginable. The earthquake shearing off sides of mountains, pulverizing tens of thousands of homes and killing around 2,000 people. With roads impassable, some of the dead had to be ridden out of villages on the backs of motorbikes. The earthquake tore this voodoo temple right off the mountain. Now, these firefighters have been working here for two days now. They believe there are more bodies in the rubble. And this goes on for house after house. Hospitals gutted by the quake are filled with patients, many of them in tents or hallways. The Coast Guard medevac over a hundred patients, but even today, those injured in the quake continue arriving at the hospital. Does your neck hurt? This is one of the patients who continues to trickle into hospitals like this. Survivors of the earthquake, he has a double pelvic fracture who have been suffering for days without medical care. And tonight, like Lucia, hundreds of thousands remain homeless. And just 36 hours after Tropical Storm Grace plowed through here, these quake victims getting soaked as they waited for care at a hospital. Hundreds of others hunkering down in the soccer field amid downpours bringing up to 15 inches of rain.
2: It's not good here by the coast. My home was destroyed. I have nothing. Nothing to use to sleep. Look, there's a lot of children here. I really have nothing.
1: So it's after all that that a few thousand Haitians want to come into our country and our response is to send men on horseback to whip families trying to cross a dangerous river. But don't worry. Vice President Kamala Harris promised to look into the matter.
5: Madam Vice President, do you have any reaction to the border patrol agents using horse reins
1: to rein in Haitian migrants down at the southern border?
9: What I saw depicted about um, those individuals on horseback treating human beings the way they were is horrible, and um, I fully support what is happening right now, which is a thorough investigation into exactly what is going on there, Um, but human beings should never be treated that way, and I'm deeply troubled about it, and I'll also be talking to Secretary Mayorkas today about it.
1: Yeah, it's your classic Democrat. We're going to look into it. We're going to do a thorough investigation. We're going to form a committee. I'm deeply troubled by all this, uh, even though I'm in a position of incredible power. This thing shouldn't be happening. Well, the good thing is that now we have the results of that investigation.
4: So what he has asked all of us to convey clearly to people who are understandably have questions, are passionate, are concerned, as we are about the images that we have seen, is one, we feel those images are horrible and horrific. There is an investigation the president certainly supports, overseen by the Department of Homeland Security, which he has conveyed will will happen quickly. I can also convey to you that the secretary also conveyed to civil rights leaders earlier this morning that we would no longer be using horses in Del Rio. Uh, So that is something, a policy change that has been made in response.
1: There you have it. That should solve it. There are no more horses. That's that's the real issues, the horses. The Democrats once again resort to what amounts to cosmetic changes that will make them feel less icky about the whole thing while not addressing any of the meat of the issue and generally just being brazen hypocrites. Now, there's this conventional wisdom out there that Republicans are the xenophobic party, while the Democrats are the humane and tolerant ones who say black lives matter and immigrants welcome here. Now, the right loses their mind saying that Democrats support open borders and are just begging hordes of people to come into the country. Nothing could be further from the truth. The phenomenon of border militarization started under Bill Clinton in the 1990s in the wake of NAFTA. The administration knew that the so called free trade agreement would push millions of people in Central America off the land and lead to a migration crisis. And it was friend of the show, Rahm Emanuel, who designed the policy to harden the border and deport millions of people. This is from NBC Chicago. Quote, a batch of 90s-era White House memos from Rahm Emanuel to former President Bill Clinton reveal a shrewd political mind motivated by messaging rather than ideology. The documents posted on the Chicago Sun-Times website uh, were recently made public among the archives at Clinton's Presidential Library in Arkansas after 12 years of concealment. They show the 54-year-old Chicago mayor, a senior advisor to Clinton circa 1993 to 1998, urging the president to crack down on undocumented immigrants and take a stronger stand on combating crime as part of a a strategy to appropriate GOP platforms for political gain. In a November 1996 memo on national policy, Emmanuel advised Clinton, then starting his second term, to add more immigration hearings across six states, Illinois included, so that he could claim and achieve record deportations of criminal aliens. You know, this comes after the fact that in 1986, Ronald Reagan actually passed a pretty sweeping amnesty bill for immigrants. And it was NAFTA that really changed the game. For the free trade agreements to work in the eyes of capital, you need to force the free flow of capital across borders, but you need to stop the free flow of people. That way, capital can keep wages low. So border militarization obviously ramped up under Bush in the wake of September 11th, but Obama took it to heights hitherto unseen, deporting more people than all previous presidents combined. Trump then did the kids in cages thing, and now Biden is sending in the horse whips. So any humane response to the situation in Haiti starts with stopping any more interventions there and allowing them to develop economically on their own terms. It also starts with processing these migrants humanely. It is, abs- is the absolute least we can do after destroying the oldest black Republic in the world, a Republic that was founded by slaves who threw off their shackles and broke away from their masters for that crime. They have been forced to pay literally ever since it needs to stop now.
0: As always, you nail it when it comes to providing historical context uh, into what we're experiencing today, especially with the migrant crisis. And that was excellent. So uh, The thing that really stands out to me, like a broader point I want to make about the Democratic Party is that, man, they really absolutely need to pass legislation that materially uh, improves the lives of working Americans, because the only thing they've been able to rely on um, campaign wise is the very moralizing uh, and weaponizing that they've done in regard to culture war issues, in regard to immigration. Um, You know, it's it's been their whole identity and what they kind of uh, focus on in every campaign that you see. Now, obviously, there are progressive candidates, people like Bernie Sanders, for instance, who's done a great job focusing on um, the economic issues. But for the most part, when we're talking about corporate Democrats, the only way that they've really. Succeeded, I guess, in differentiating themselves from Republicans is by uh, pretending to be, uh, you know, warriors for equality, you know, the, the type of representatives who would fight for um, the kind treatment of migrants at the border. And all of that is being proven complete and utter BS over and over again. I don't think... I don't think voters are going to fall for it. Right. Like there are some voters right now who were super like vociferous toward the Trump administration and its cruel immigration policies. And today, like you're not seeing them so upset about what the Biden administration is doing. But there is a divide, I think, among the Democratic electorate. And we first started seeing it during the 2016 general election people are not buying it anymore. Right. And they want something to vote in favor of some like something like substantive to be in favor of other than constantly weaponizing identity politics, which honestly, I think Democrats have done in regard to immigration. Right. Like it's it's got that identity politics, you know, angle to it. But, and the reason why people are so I guess tired of identity politics is because it's used as a tool or a weapon by democratic campaigns. It's not about actually substantively improving the lives of the very people they claim they want to improve the lives of. A perfect example is the police reform bill that's done it's 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 going nowhere. Uh, we got a story yesterday about how uh, Cory Booker uh, just can't get the Senate Republicans on board with the police reform bill. Well yeah, we know that. If you really wanted to pass police reform, if you actually were concerned about it, you would fight like hell to get rid of the legislative filibuster and you'd pass it with Democrats, but he's not willing to do that. So again, it's yeah. when they use disenfranchised groups of people as a campaigning tool rather than really genuinely caring about people and wanting to do something that benefits their lives. That's that's the thing that's, you know.
8: Yeah.
1: Like, I find identity politics to be, like, superficially annoying, like most people, I think, like, you know, just the, the just annoying. But what, what I find grotesque about it is that it's like if they were to actually do the identity politics, like if they actually were to follow through and do the things, I'd be fine with it. Because, like, I, I, I could take the superficial annoyingness of it because, like, oh, maybe they would actually, like, you know, see uh, thousands of, of black families uh Swimming across a river and being like, "Oh, remember, like, oh, we've been saying Black Lives Matter, like, you know, in our head, like, over and over again for the past like three years." Right. Uh, maybe, yeah, that that then, okay, that this is like a good opportunity for us to like actually follow through on that. And then I'd be like, okay, that's that's fun, that's good, you know. But it just it's so they're so obviously full of shit, like they're so obviously hypocritical, they're so obviously empty. That that I, I find the whole thing just so grotesque because again, it's just, there's so, there's a certain coherence to the Republican. The Republican agenda is incredibly unpopular, not just their economic agenda. Their social agenda is overall unpopular. Most Americans reject the right wing's social uh, agenda, but there is an element in which there is a sort of internal coherence to them in which that they're not as full of shit as the Democrats, you know, they don't make people feel like they're morally bad for doing anything, you know, like they, 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 they allow people to just kind of be who they want to be. And that gives them a huge amount of electoral oomph that Democrats kind of lack because people assume Democrats are just lying to them and, and, and that they're not, and that they're lying to themselves when they yeah. say things like, you know, immigrants welcome here.
0: Well, OK, to that point, I mean, I think the Republican Party is abundantly clear about what their immigration policy is, right? And and with Biden, I don't know what he's doing, right? It seems like he's kind of trying to straddle both sides, hoping that maybe he'll get credit from the right wing on being a hardliner on immigration, while rhetorically pleasing you know, Democrats, and I'm talking about voters here, uh, by maybe not using the type of I don't know adversarial language that you'd get from someone like Donald Trump. But all he's doing is infuriating everybody. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I don't know what, like, how exactly is Joe Biden's immigration policy different of that uh, different from Trump's? I, I don't, I don't know. It's not.
1: It's not. it's not, it's, it's right? absolutely not. It's just yeah. on, in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's absolutely not. It's, it's, in many, in some ways it's worse, <laughs> you know? Like, um, and, in terms of deportation, uh, you know, it
0: certainly is so far.
1: Yeah. And again, I, I, I you know, and li- listen, like the uh, people like talk about the Hispanic vote a lot. And it's something that I looked at a lot when I was at Univision. Um, and on the one hand, Hispanic voters care about more things than immigration. But on the other hand, it's hard to, it's hard not to notice that when Bush jr in 2004 came out strongly for comprehensive immigration reform, he won almost 50% of the Hispanic vote as a Republican. That is crazy to think about, you know, he won almost 50% of of the Hispanic vote. He was a Texas governor. He spoke a little Spanish, but he also supported comprehensive immigration reform pretty aggressively. Mm -hmm. Um, And he won close to fifty percent of the Hispanic vote. Now Democrats who just claim they're they're pro-immigrant, just when when they're in power, they they do these insane things. Like Obama deported an unbelievable amount of people. It's one of like his greatest crimes. I mean, like millions and millions of people uprooted from the United States and sent back to Central America. I mean, it's just when you when you think about it for a second, you're like Jesus Christ. Like that is like a like a mass forced movement of millions of people. Yeah. Um, and he got, a, a, you know, politically zero, like it affected him zero. Um, there's no other way to see it as, as, as something that they, they, they just want to do. that They just believe in, in some way, because like, there is no political argument for it. It makes no makes sense. sense. Um, you won't get any brownie points as a Democrat. If you're doing that, you just will not. You won't. They won't believe it. The white, the right wing will not believe it. They stay. They, they still believe that Biden is like this open borders uh, <laughs> radical.
0: Yeah, I you mean know. Tulsi Gabbard argues that we have uh, open borders right now as we speak.
1: Oh yeah, like to- Tulsi Gabbard was tweeting about how she. I mean, I wish I. I wish I, I. I thought about including the tweet, but like I thought it would be a distraction. But she was arguing that we should bring back the Trump era uh, immigration policies. Tulsi Gabbard, um, amazing, and it's just. It, Again, like, so you're not going to get any points. So just, just do the right thing. Just do right. the right thing for once in your goddamn life. You know, Yep. it it makes me so angry.
0: Well, I want to get to my decode. So we uh, don't keep our guest waiting. Really looking forward to the interview with Dean Baker. Um, and also guys, uh, hopefully we can get to some of your chat, super chat questions if you're watching on YouTube or um, Patreon. So go ahead and send us your questions. We'll uh, try to get to as many of them as possible toward the end. All right. Well, let's talk about overtime abuse, uh, because there is a positive update on the Nabisco strike that I want to share with you. But there's an element to it that's worth exploring in more detail. The nationwide Nabisco strike came to an end this week after more than 75% of union members voted in favor of a new contract that was offered by executives at Nabisco's parent company, Mondelez. Now, the agreement came after workers across the country decided to strike in protest of a long list of pretty awful proposals and contract negotiations, including cuts in benefits and in overtime pay.
2: The showdown is something that's been brewing for years with workers asking to give more and more concessions, culminating in contract talks that were the final straw for many. The new contract offered by Mondelez would ditch their longstanding premium pay system, which guarantees time and a half for anyone working more than eight hours a day and on Saturdays, and gives double pay for working Sundays. It was one of the main attractions for the job, which can often take a huge phys- physical toll on workers. Instead of time and a half, workers would be paid normal wages until they hit 40 hours each week, regardless of the days in which they work. The company also wants to change eight-hour workdays to 12-hour shifts, something workers aren't thrilled about. Considering that some of them have worked for months without a single day off, but some estimates reveal the cuts could cost workers between ten and forty thousand dollars a year, as Mondelez earned three point five billion dollars in profit in twenty twenty.
0: So that's a good rundown of all of the awful proposals that uh, the parent company was making for these workers. They hated it, and uh, they decided to strike. And luckily, that strike did allow these workers to secure some critical concessions. uh, And I want to share those concessions with you. Now, this is also important. Though some Portland employees oppose ratifying the four-year contract, calling for better terms, it ultimately garnered the necessary support from workers there and at facilities in Aurora, Colorado; Richmond, Virginia; Chicago, Illinois; and Norcross, Georgia. Now, the new contract for the Nabisco workers, um, you know, scraps the new healthcare proposal, which would uh, obviously provide worse health care than they currently had uh, or currently have. Uh, so they were able to continue um, with the health care policies that they liked. It also increases wages by 60 cents an hour. It includes a one-time $5,000 bonus, and it also allows most workers to maintain their regular overtime schedules. Now, why did some of the employees uh, want to reject the negotiations, reject this deal? Well, one of the main areas of conflict... Uh, as mentioned earlier, was the mandatory overtime, and uh, Nabisco was in fact forcing workers to work overtime even when they didn't want to. If they refused it, uh, they would be retaliated against. Now, due to the COVID-related labor shortage, employees, including those at Nabisco, have been, um, you know, forcing workers to work these grueling hours and these back-to-back shifts. Some of the workers said uh, that all they had time to do was sleep for eight hours before having to get back to work the next day. And to add insult to injury, Mondelez International actually tried to limit overtime pay. Mondelez wanted uh, some Nabisco employees to work for shifts of up to 12 hours without even being eligible for overtime pay, in exchange for working fewer days a week. By the way, this is a trick that employers have tried to implement for a very, very long time following some of the successes of the labor movement. We'll get to that in just a second. But those weekend shifts, those on-weekend shifts, previously eligible for extra pay, would get the premium only after working 40 hours a week. Now, the way it works now is if you work longer than an eight-hour shift, You get a time and a half for every hour past that eight hours. Uh, And Mondelez wanted to get rid of that. And uh, it was incredibly frustrating for the workers, uh, not only because of the pay situation, which again adds insult to injury, but because these workers were already so overworked. Watch.
9: We have a family just as well as the people in human resources and management. While we're working on a weekend and being forced, they're at home with their families. We can't even get a chance to enjoy birthday parties for our grandkids. We can't go away to, see, to take our kids to college because we're being forced to work. We can't enjoy our husbands, our spouses, because we're at work. By the time we get off work, it's go home, go to sleep, try to fix us something to eat, get in the bed, and be back at work. Sometimes. And when they say, oh,
3: I want to change your hours, I want to take it away, uh, your premium time, I want to cut your health insurance, they're not. They're not lawyers.
0: They're not loyal. Now, look, the employers are going to want to maximize profit, and that means squeezing as much labor out of these workers at the lowest possible price. And I'm sad to report that even though there were critical concessions on behalf of the workers, the mandatory overtime pay issue uh, continues to be a problem, which is why some of the workers were against this deal. So More Perfect Union um, updated everyone on Twitter about the outcome of the negotiations. The new agreement doesn't kill Mondelez's plan to implement 12-hour weekend shifts with no overtime pay, but that system would mostly apply to new workers who take weekend crew roles. Now, with votes in from all five U.S. bakeries, support for the deal was overwhelming, we were told. And as I mentioned earlier, 75% of the workers uh, agreed to the deal. So obviously, the majority of workers wanted this. Now, I also want to just note that In order for this new new policy to be implemented, uh, meaning that it would only impact new workers, they would need to hire new workers. And despite the fact that the federally subsidized unemployment benefits have expired, uh, which many thought would force people back to work, the truth of the matter is employers are still having a difficult time finding labor. I think childcare probably has a lot to do with that, as Nando, uh, you know, gave us a lot of details on in a previous decode segment. Now, I, I do also want to talk about the issue of mandatory overtime because this is a problem that impacts many workers across the country, not just. Unionized workers who have some protection, who are able to do what the Nabisco workers did, Um, but usually workers who don't have much protection at all and uh, could really be retaliated against if they speak out against this type of abuse. Now, as Stanford University economist Nicholas Bloom notes, America's gross domestic product, a measure of how the economy is performing, is actually back to pre pandemic levels. He says that the GDP is miraculously above its pre pandemic levels, but we have five or six million less employees. So each person is generating more output. This will involve working harder per hour, so less breaks, more intensity. And more stress and also more hours. And uh, just to give you an idea of how bad the the situation really is, the number of open U.S. positions surged to a record 10.9 million in July, the most recent month for which government data is available. Now, instead of offering improved working conditions and higher wages, companies that are actually the most impacted by these labor shortages are actually demanding that their remaining workers carry the burden by working mandatory overtime. So in a survey conducted by Payroll ADP, Inc., U.S. workers reported putting in an average of 8.9 hours a week of unpaid time unpaid time in January of 2021, compared with four hours a week a year earlier. The survey didn't specify what share of those workers are eligible for premium pay. Now, when you take a look at specific sectors, for instance, the manufacturing world, Production employees worked an average of 4.2 extra hours a week last month, and that's according to data from the Labor Department. That was up from an average of 3.8 extra hours in August of 2020 and 2.8 hours in April of 2020. And I want to give you an example of a forklift driver who luckily- does get a time and a half for overtime work. That's good news. Not everyone gets that, unfortunately. His name is Jose Ramos. And uh, he was speaking to the Washington Journal, I'm sorry, the Wall Street Journal, um, to talk about how, you know, oftentimes he will volunteer for overtime because he does get the extra pay associated with it. But sometimes he's forced to do it by his employer. So Jose Ramos, a forklift operator for glass and metal producer Ardoch Group in Indiana, who said he worked more than 600 hours of overtime last quarter and still often puts in 72-hour weeks. Now, Ramos's managers often ask for two or three overtime volunteers. If not enough people raise their hands, workers who incurred the fewest overtime hours that week are required to step up, he said, refusing the request Can lead to a write up. So there is retaliation uh, if these workers say no, they reject the mandatory overtime. And that is incredibly difficult when you consider the fact that workers have lives outside of the workplace, they have families to take care of, kids to drop off at school, kids to pick up from soccer games. That kind of stuff. And as you know, what compounds this situation is the fact that we don't have childcare. There really isn't a system in place in the United States that offers families the support necessary. So there's child care while the parents are at work. Um, And then there are some pretty extreme examples. RK Industries LLC, a 1,400-person construction and manufacturing firm based in Denver, is using overtime to add the equivalent of 60 to 100 full-time employees to its capacity every week. That's around 2,500 hours or 7.3% of all hours worked. And uh, the grueling hours seem to be keeping uh, potential new hires away, despite this company actually offering some significant pay increases. So uh, they increase their hourly wage from 12 hours to 16, um, from $12 an hour to $16 an hour. And they're actually planning on increasing wages to $18 an hour. But it's not just about pay. It's about having A life outside of work. So what seems to be keeping a lot of these workers away, but more importantly, why a lot of the workers at RK Industries uh, keep resigning is because the hours are just untenable. It's incredibly difficult to work long hours, shift after shift, day after day with really no break in sight. Employers and researchers say that the uh, demands for extra time are contributing to a broad wave of resignations sweeping across the country as more U.S. workers quit their jobs. than at any time in the last two decades, that in turn places even more pressure on remaining employees. And again, uncompensated overtime is something that businesses are actually fighting hard to implement. But when it comes to salaried workers, people who don't get paid by the hour, that abusive practice has already been in effect for quite some time. But that wasn't always the case. So in 1975, more than 65 percent of salaried American workers earned time and a half pay for every hour worked over 40 hours a week. Not because capitalists back then were more generous, but because it was the law. And let me note, it wasn't magically the law, because members of Congress decided to pass it out of the kindness of their own hearts. That was because there was a more robust labor movement that fought and won um, you know, things like the eight-hour work week, uh, eight-hour work day, 40-hour work week, uh, and what have you. We'll get to all of that in just a second. Um, but things changed, obviously. Now, only workers earning an annual income of under $23,660 qualify for mandatory overtime. By 2013, just 11% 11% Percent of salaried workers qualified for overtime pay. To get the country back to the same equitable standards we had in 1975, the Department of Labor would simply have to raise the overtime threshold to $69,000. By the way, this is an older article; it's from 2014. So, adjusted for inflation, that number would need to be even higher. Um, But uh, back in 2014, it would have to be $69,000 or less. For you know, you to be paid overtime, um, you know, in the same way that salaried workers would be paid overtime back in 1975. So that's a lot of numbers, okay? And Obama tried, you know, he attempted to do something about salaried workers um, being overworked and underpaid, and so he wanted to raise that threshold to not quite 69 thousand dollars. In typical Obama fashion, he wanted to go halfway. Let's watch.
5: An estimated 10 million workers stand to benefit from the president's plan, including supervisors at fast food restaurants, department store managers, and computer technicians. Right now, under federal law, businesses can deny overtime wages, that's time and a half, to any manager or supervisor who earns more than $455 a week or $23,600 per year. That salary is slightly above the poverty line for a family of four. President Obama will raise that threshold above $455 to anywhere between $550 and $970 per week.
0: Now, some progress is certainly better than no progress at all. But unfortunately, Obama waited till the tail end of his second term to try to implement these changes. um, And the Labor Department, of course, uh, implemented it. And then since Obama was a lame duck president, Uh, federal judges were effective in essentially blocking his overtime pay expansion.
2: 21 states got together and sued the Obama administration over the rule. The states argue that the new cap, which would automatically update every three years, could deplete their budgets and resources over time. Prior to the nationwide block, Politico reported Republicans in Congress were looking to potentially repeal the overtime rule after President-elect Donald Trump is inaugurated. And uh,
0: by the way, after the federal courts blocked the new labor law, uh, or labor rules, I should say, the Trump administration actually repealed them altogether. Uh, Senator Sherrod Brown actually blasted Trump for the move on the Senate floor. Let's watch that.
7: So when we passed that rule, when the Obama administration sent the Secretary of Labor to Columbus, Ohio, and I was there and we made this announcement, we celebrated on behalf of 150 150,000 Ohio workers that were making 30, or 40, or 45, up to 46,000 a year, that they were going to get time and a half. If they were away from their family for those extra 10 hours, working 50 hours a week, or those extra 20 hours, if they were working 60 hours a week, they were going to take home thousands of dollars in overtime pay if they did that week after week. This president says he's for workers, and then he changes this law, he changes this rule.
0: Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And uh, it wouldn't be so surprising if people paid close attention to who Donald Trump was. In fact, you can tell who Donald Trump is and the way he really feels about working Americans based on the way he treats his own workers. President Trump's
2: personal driver for 25 years is suing his former boss for unpaid overtime. Noel Sintron says he's owed 3,300 hours in back pay for the past six years by the Trump organization. Cintron claims he was required to be on duty at 7 a.m. every day and worked as long as 55 hours per week. He also claims he was only given a raise twice in 15 years and the second one came with a catch. He was told he'd have to surrender his health insurance to get it a move that saved Trump about $17,886 per year in premiums, according to the lawsuit.
0: Look, financial interests obligate employers to squeeze as much labor from workers for the lowest possible price. That's what's happening here, right? Uh, They want to maximize their profits. I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, but it is the logical and rational thing to do, especially under this type of system. So as unjust as all of this is, there is actually some pretty good news. Workers don't even have to reinvent the wheel since shorter working days were once fought for and won by organized workers. Let's go back
4: to the tail end of the depression, a huge public movement coupled with the landslide re-election of Franklin Roosevelt led to the passage of the Fair Labor Standards Act
9: in 1938. We had workers, we had the government, and we had the general public who understood the importance of workers' rights. And that established the 40-hour workweek, it established the minimum wage as well as the minimum age, and then of course the overtime. Overtime
4: was a game changer for workers who qualified for it.
8: And so the idea is that workers, like other human beings, want to have a life outside of work. And therefore, there should be a limit on what is a norm for work.
4: What was normal was up for debate. President Roosevelt and Congress settled on the system that we know now. Forty hours is normal. You get one and a half times your hourly wage for any work beyond that. That created the eight-hour day.
0: So today's workers can certainly take a page out of uh, the book of organized labor in the past. And really, it's the only way to claw back the gains that previous labor struggles were able to secure. I know we look a lot to uh, electoral politics and just assume that our elected officials are going to do the right thing or that maybe employers will be moral and not exploit their workers. But none of that is true. Really, it's, it's about power. It's about the power imbalance that we're experiencing right now between the worker and the employer. And we need to organize in order to get that power dynamic back to where it belongs. Uh, I know we've got our guest uh, waiting patiently, Nando. So um, maybe we yeah. go to that. Yeah, he's,
1: this, this, is yeah. His, uh, this is his wheelhouse. So yeah.
0: Yes. Um, so let me, let me find my papers want to make sure that I uh, do his intro justice. All right, I'm ready. Dean Baker now joins us. He is the senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. He also writes for Beat the Press and is published in Jacobin. His latest book from 2016 is Rigged, How Globalized and the How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. Uh, Dean, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks a lot for having me on.
0: So uh, I'm guessing you heard the segment that I just did on... uh, Yeah, it was a very good segment.
10: We've written a lot on that over the years. Very important issue.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Um, Well, I wanted to ask... You know, one of the things that's really driving the mandatory overtime policies right now is the fact that there is a labor shortage. There continues to be a labor shortage, even though the um, more robust unemployment benefits that were subsidized by the federal government have expired. What do you think is behind that?
10: Well, it's it's clear that you know the the, the whole story about the generous unemployment benefits. There was a lot of research on that. I mean, I'm not going to say that Nero. Zero effect, but the idea that that was somehow keeping millions of people from working that that just didn't make any sense. And we knew that. So now that they've ended, and of course, they ended for everyone a couple of weeks ago, but they ended in most states, um, many in June, others in July. So it's not new that they've lost those benefits. But what seems to be the case, and I'm going to say, I don't know, I don't think anyone's got a total explanation for this. I think workers are in a position to be more choosy about where they go to work. And my guess here, and again, this is a guess is that if you manage to, to stay employed through the downturn, or at least most of the downturn, the pandemic, um, you got those pandemic checks, which were a total of uh, 3,200 for a person, you know, 2,000 uh, and then 1,200 earlier, um, additional money if you had kids. Um, people who were getting unemployment benefits, in many cases, they did get more than what they got working. So if you go back to the original CARES Act, people got $600 supplements, in addition to their unemployment benefits, we had people that were working five hours a week at $250 a week. They were at $10 an hour. They're getting much less than what they're getting in benefits. There were a lot of people, I think, that actually improved their financial shape through the pandemic. And I don't just mean, you know, Jeff Bezos obviously made a lot of money on Amazon, but I think a lot of uh, more moderate income people were able to to improve their financial situation. And they can now be more choosy about their jobs. So when you look at the lowest paid jobs, things like restaurant work, retail work, you're seeing rapid increases. And I think that's because people feel they don't have to take those jobs and they aren't going to take them unless they do get pay increases. So that's a good story. The part you're talking about where they say, oh, okay, well, we can't get workers. So. What we're going to do is tell everyone they have to work more hours. Well, that's a real downside. That's a real bad story, obviously. Um, Some workers will just leave, and that's good if they're in a situation to do that and find another job, as many are. But that, I think, is the story that we're seeing right now. Employers are trying to adjust to a different environment. I hope my my analysis there is correct. Again, I may not be, but if, if it's really the situation, workers can be more choosy about where they go to work. To so my view, that's a great story. And, you know, again, employers aren't going to be happy. Some will go out of business. You know, that's one of the things um, they always find a restaurant owner who goes, I can't afford to, to pay 15 bucks an hour. And some restaurants can't. That's capitalism. They, that's, that's, uh, that's why we don't stuff. half our workforce working on farms. They weren't profitable when workers could get jobs in factories that paid them more money. So we're in, uh, interesting might be not the best term here, but interesting times where we may see workers in a position to get real gains. And we'll probably get a better story on that, better picture in the next three or four months as you know. hopefully the pandemic uh, recedes again. I think there's evidence we are getting it under control. Even states like Florida, the numbers are way down. So I think I'm being optimistic, but I think we'll get it more under control. And we'll see what the labor force looks like. But for right now, um, you are seeing big wage gains for the lowest paid workers. And I have to say, that's a really nice thing to see.
1: Uh, I believe they call it creative destruction in the free market world. Um, yeah. And you, you mentioned that it's interesting times. And it's uh, it was interesting to me that during his press conference this morning, President Joe Biden claimed that he is, quote, tired of trickle down economics, um, you know, on the one hand, he's proposed some pretty robust legislation that uh, I, you know, certainly unlike anything that's come about in, in, a, in, a, in a long time. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, politically, he seems to be having some trouble getting um, some of his more conservative Democrats on board with his agenda. What, what do you make of the whole of the whole uh, fight over this new big reconciliation bill?
10: Well, it's of course frustrating, you know someone who you know I like the bill i mean there's a, there are a lot of good things in there in terms did we lose him, or is that me?
0: Uh, uh I think we lost him.
1: The takes were too hot for the stream.
0: <laughs> right, right the takes um, was were really too curious too spicy okay, he's back. Maybe we I'm can back. try it one more time, yeah.
10: Maybe I'd be careful what I say here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the YouTube man. <laughs> Anyhow, say, I'll just say yeah, yeah. There, there are a lot of good things in that bill. So it's, of course, upsetting to see that you have more moderate conservative Democrats resisting. Not altogether surprising, though. So, you know, how do you bring in the Senate, uh, Sinema, and Manchin on board? Uh, you have, I don't know what the final number is, 8, nine, ten uh, conservative members in the House who are saying it's too big. Um, I'm assuming at the end of the day, I mean, there's one thing I'll say uh, Pelosi is masterful at corralling uh, her members. I think she will get votes. It won't, probably won't be for what you or I would like, it'll be the three and a half trillion. We should be careful about that. I've been haranguing people. It's about 350 billion a year. It's not that large. It's about 1.2% of the economy and it's still less than half of the military budget. So we aren't talking about some monstrous sum. Most of it's paid for with new taxes. But anyhow, they'll probably get less than that, but I think they could still get enough to make a really big difference. I I didn't say anything about climate change here. This is perhaps the most fundamental, not that they all aren't very important, but we know time is running out. So it's really important that we make a big down payment on trying to reorient our economy to to clean energy, electric cars, uh, more conservation. We have to do it. We should have done that two decades ago, three decades ago, probably, but- you know, we have to do it now if we want to have a livable planet 20, 30, 40 years out.
0: Well, you know, to your point about how this isn't some monstrous bill, uh, it's certainly being uh, reported on that way. It's being talked about that way by corporate Democrats in the Senate. And uh, all of a sudden, it's not just the GOP, we're hearing alleged concerns about the debt from people like uh, Kirsten Cinema in the Senate a democrat and so uh, of course she's getting some assistance from the media uh, a few weeks ago Axios reported that she's just pouring over her spreadsheets, spreadsheets. she's got the right. spreadsheets she has this like focus right on on the debt and you know you've written quite a bit about uh, the debt and how these concerns are certainly inflated can you can you talk about that a little bit
10: yeah, there's there's a few points here first off um, you know what I like to ask people is well how do you know about the debt I remember being on a panel some years back with policy types media and policy types and they're going on about the debt and I go can anyone tell me how large it is you know relative to the size of the economy I mean just roughly and no one no one even had a ballpark number I mean like within 10 percentage points of GDP I mean no one no one knew so you just go okay, so how does your typical person on the street know about the debt well they don't except what they hear, You know, in the media, people yelling about it. But does it have a practical impact? Well, the impact is we pay interest on the debt, and that's money that's going to the people in government bonds instead of, in principle, going to healthcare or whatever we might like. Well, how large is that? Well, currently, that's about 1% of GDP. Now, by comparison, if we go back to the early mid-90s, it was over 3% of GDP. So if we're worried, oh, my God, what about the burden on our kids? That's the relevant measure. Now, it can go higher. It probably will go higher. Interest rates will probably go higher. We are adding to the debt. It takes us a long time just to get back to where we were in the early 90s. And for people who might not know or remember, 90s were a really prosperous decade in spite of that burden. But that's really just part of the story. One of the things that gets me really angry, because when I hear people meet policy people, economists type people... Um, direct payments are only one way in which we pay for things. And this is something I harangued a lot about Um, patents and patent and copyright monopolies. Those are alternative ways for paying for things. And those are actually very expensive. So my favorite example, because it's probably the most important uh, prescription drugs, we're going to spend 500 billion this year on prescription drugs. If the government hadn't given out patent and related monopolies, we'd probably spend less than 100 billion. That difference is over $400 billion a year that comes to to over $1,000 per person. And what's more, it's more than what we pay in service on the debt, more than what we pay in interest on the debt. So if you're being serious about, oh, the burdens on future generations, well, how about adding in patents and copyrights? Um, The other part of the story, and this is certainly important in the current context, we see that we have enormous expenditures we have to make this year because of climate-related damage. I'm out in the West, so we have all these wildfires in Oregon and California. We had some near me here in Utah. Very expensive to to combat them. People have to be relocated. Um, That's very, very expensive. And then, of course, we had the hurricanes, the flooding in Louisiana, right up through New York and New Jersey, right across the East Coast. Um, Again, that's very expensive. So if we tell our kids, I mean, just I'm just imagining a conversation. Maybe I won't be alive in 30 or 40 years, but I just imagine a conversation. I tell some some young kid that, you know, they're in their early 20s going, oh, you know, we paid down the debt for you. But meanwhile, we did nothing on climate change. So they have like a hor- horribly destroyed planet. You know, would I expect that kid to say thank you? I mean, it's it's close to nuts. So the way we talk about the debt is really um, I would just say it's it's just it's just fiction. It has nothing to do with reality.
0: Can I just ask a quick follow-up question to that? Because you mentioned the low interest rate in um, paying back the debt. And is that tied to the interest rate uh, that's, you know, decided by the federal reserve? Is that related at all?
10: Oh yeah, of course. The federal reserve influences interest rates and they've tried to keep them low to boost the economy through the pandemic. Um, So you know, of course, they push down the, 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 the interest rate they most immediately control is this overnight rate. That's just what banks pay. They push that down to zero back in March You know, when we first had the shutdown. And that certainly helped the economy and that puts downward pressure on longer rates more generally. So what you see is that the interest rate that the government pays on its various bonds, we usually look at the 10-year treasury as the key issue there, That's fallen a lot. I I haven't looked today. It's somewhere around one3 maybe 1.4%. Historically, it's been much higher. So if you go back to the 90s, it it was over 6% at the start of the decade. And by the end of the decade, uh, Clinton was very proud of this. You know, they had their deficit reduction. They actually were running surpluses. They got the the 10-year Treasury rate somewhere around 4%. Again, we'd have to check the exact number. But by historical standards, the interest rates that we're paying today are very, very low Part of that is the Fed, no doubt about it. But part of that, this has been a worldwide phenomenon. Part of that is that we've seen weak demand worldwide. And what that's meant is that we've had interest rates go lower because we've needed the support for the economy. So we we
0: have rates. Hasn't that, though, also had a negative impact in regard to inflation? Um, For instance, there's now this uh, newer trend of private equity firms um, taking advantage of that cheap money. Uh, to buy out entire neighborhoods of residential properties and then uh, turn them into rentals uh, so that's uh, unfortunately leading to um, even more inflation in the housing market um, essentially pricing people out of the housing market if they're looking to be first-time home buyers um, and you know there's also the issue of uh, the increased liquidity being utilized by corporations and banks to do corporate stock buybacks um, is do you see that uh, continuing to be a problem do you see it as a Problem at all?
10: I don't see it as a major problem. I mean, the effects of interest rates, home prices have gone up, but the flip side of that is that it's what you pay on a mortgage is much much less. So currently, the thirty-year mortgage rate again, I have to check the exact number, but somewhere close to three percent. Um, when I first got a home back in, I think it was eighty-nine, I paid ten percent. Um, so you know, you could do the arithmetic and that. You could you get you buy a home for more than twice the price, paying a three percent mortgage rate and have a lower monthly payment than what I had with my 10% mortgage payment back in 1989. So those are countervailing effects. And you have to look closely whether that makes it you know harder or easier. Obviously, you need a bigger down payment, which, of course, I understand is a very big problem. But a lot of people and a lot of uh, moderate income people have saved a huge amount of money on mortgages. And of course, one of the big factors that we've seen with the drop in, in interest rates is a Huge number of people, literally millions, probably over $10 million at this point, refinance their mortgage. So they might have been paying 4.5% interest back in, say, 2019, 2018. And today they're paying something close to 3%. So those are, those are offsetting stories. Now, are we going to see inflation more generally? This is a big argument among economists. Uh, Larry Summers, of course, has been out there screaming, we're going to see, you know, 70s-type spiraling inflation. I am not inclined to believe that story. We are seeing... Uh, Certain sectors, auto in particular, stood out that we've had uh, disruptions because of shortage of semiconductors. There was a big increase in new car prices and an even bigger increase in used car prices. I don't expect that to be enduring. So we do have to keep an eye on inflation, but I'm really not expecting to see it take off. So, you know, it's a reasonable question. I'm not not dismissing it. I'm just saying um, I'm skeptical as to whether that's going to be an ongoing problem.
1: I would be remiss uh, if I didn't ask you about the breaking news we got this morning of uh, Xi Jinping banning cryptocurrency transactions in China.
10: Uh, What do you make of that? And what do you make about crypto more broadly? Well, uh, you know, I'm not going to claim expertise in China's economy. It's obviously a much more controlled economy than the U.S. And it's interesting that, you know, he decided that that was necessary. I maybe didn't think it was necessary, but in any case, I'll just say a good thing to do. Um, I don't see a real use for crypto, so I wouldn't go the route of outlawing it, but I would certainly want to restrain it. And I guess what I'd say first and foremost is to to create good good alternatives. And this is something that, you know, economists have talked about for a while. The Federal Reserve Board could create a digital currency where everyone in the country and every business that we have bank accounts with the Fed. And that would allow us to make all our transactions immediately, costlessly. And I suspect they would undermine much of the value much of the use of crypto I mean I just don't see you know people are saying oh well, we could do this and no one's gonna know about it and go okay well that's really good if you want to do ransomware it's really good if you want to do drug deals but that's not something I'm particularly anxious to promote so <laughs> so what I like to see, <laughs> yeah so what I'd like to see is the fed adopt those accounts which handles the legitimate purposes of crypto and for the illegitimate ones you know we'll I'd say we'll figure out what to do with that.
0: Um, You know, you mentioned uh, the pharmaceutical industry a little earlier in the interview. I wanted to ask you a question about that because uh, both in 2018 and 2020, Democratic candidates uh, certainly campaigned on lower drug prices. I mean, even Donald Trump claimed to want to do something about the exorbitant price of pharmaceutical drug prices in the United United States. Uh, But now we're seeing... Democratic lawmakers uh, flat out reject uh, allowing Medicare, for instance, to directly negotiate drug prices with pharmaceutical companies, thus allowing them to um essentially lower the drug prices for, for patients in the U.S. Uh, where do you see this fight ending up? Because uh, it seems like all the power and all the momentum is behind uh, these more corporatist Democrats who are you know, doing right by their pharmaceutical donors.
10: Yeah. Well, my guess is you'll get something not nearly as much as they should. Uh, one of the people who deserves to be singled out here is uh, Kristen Sinema, you know, of course, the senator from Arizona, because she actually ran on a platform of lowering drug prices and having Medicare negotiate. And apparently she's being a, a big obstacle to having that included in the reconciliation package. So maybe she changed her views, but you could have uh, other, you could speculate on other motives she might have, but you know, one of the things people have to realize is drugs are cheap and this is something, you know, to, to my, it's a horrible, horrible scandal. Drugs are very cheap to manufacture and distribute. And we know this for two reasons. One is that just in the U S when, uh, when a drug go- becomes generic, its price typically falls by about ninety-five percent. It's not overnight, but after a few years when you've had a number of competitors enter the market, falls by ninety-five percent. Now just to be clear, everyone who's selling it at five percent of its pre you know at its patent protected price, they're making money. You know, these aren't charities. So the point is that they could make money, they could profitably sell the drug at five percent of its patent protected price. The other reason we know this is we could look to countries where many of the drugs that we sell here aren't patented. It's, it's much more difficult to get a patent in India than the United States. And oftentimes they all have drugs, a, a famous one, Silvati, the hepatitis C drug. is a big breakthrough drug. It cured hepatitis C. So that was a very big breakthrough. But they charged $84,000 a year for it when it first came on the market it was available for a few hundred dollars a year. And just to be clear, India has high-quality manufacturers. I mean, there's some that aren't high-quality, but they're good manufacturers. They sell their drugs all over the world, including in the United States. So this isn't like you're getting something in an alley and you didn't know what was in it. So the point mm-hmm. just being that these are very cheap to manufacture and distribute. We make them expensive by giving drug companies patent monopolies. And, again, the rationale, of course, is that we want to give them incentive to research, to do their research and yeah. drugs. So that's how they convince stuff.
1: They they're compelled for profits. The profits is what makes them do the research. And uh, without them, we would have no drugs. What's the <laughs> yeah? Well, of course, that? the
10: alternative is we could just pay for the research directly, and we, we could we, just... we, we, are, we we already do that. You know, with you know, we spend over forty billion, about forty five billion a year, through the National Institutes of Health and other agencies. But also, uh, Operation Warp Speed gave us some great models. Uh, we paid Moderna. We basically paid for the development of a vaccine. We gave them about $450 million to develop the vaccine and take it through the early stages of testing, and another $450 million for their large-scale clinical trial, which they then presented to the Food and Drug Administration for approval. So we just paid them to, to develop it, which, which was a great thing to do. But then we also gave them a patent monopoly so they so said you could charge whatever you feel like. But the first part of that, just pay them to do it. Um, that's something I think we should do. And then you could say, OK, and once it's developed, anyone who wants could then produce it. And if we had done that with Moderna, the shots would probably cost, I don't know, four or five dollars a piece, maybe even less, because they really aren't that expensive to manufacture. Um, but the point is that we would be able to produce a lot more and the prices would be lower and we would have these big arguments. Um, but right. anyhow, I mean, I don't expect us to go to that system tomorrow. Maybe we'll never go to it. But the point here is that you could certainly reduce prices hugely from where they are today, and the companies would still have plenty incentive. And insofar as they lack incentive, you know, they're saying, oh, we don't really know if it's worth our while to to work on Alzheimer's drugs or cancer drugs, whatever. Well, we could pick up the tab as we did with Moderna, put up more public money, and then we don't have to worry about whether they have enough incentive.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, in fact, uh the CEO of Pfizer just sent out a company-wide email urging his uh employees to help defeat the, you know, pharmaceutical drug pricing provisions in the uh, budget reconciliation bill. Um, And so, you know, the way that you defeat it is you start donating money to anyone who might vote in favor of it, hopefully change their vote. Uh, But, you know, the argument was used in that email about how this is going to hurt innovation, the people who really get hurt at the end of the day are the um, U.S. patients. uh, But, I think that's a bunch of hogwash. Uh, I also wanted to quickly ask you about the uh, supply chains because we certainly experienced during the pandemic um, that our supply chains are pretty vulnerable. You know, we had certain shortages early on in the pandemic. Uh, but at the same time, even as we're experiencing these things, uh, pharmaceutical companies are offshoring our manufacturing dr- uh, manufacturing jobs to other countries like India. Um, do you see that uh becoming a big problem in terms of making the U.S. more vulnerable to shortages, or do you think it'll not really be a problem?
10: Well, there's a few points here. First off, I think there's been a lot of confusion on what are supply chain issues versus stockpile issues. So early on in the pandemic, of course, we had horrible shortages of ventilators, um, protective medical gear. Um, those are stockpile issues, because even if all that was produced domestically, it's not as though we would have had factories here. We could just say, oh, get us, you know, 300 million masks next week. Um, they still have to be produced. And that was a real, uh, real failure of government. Um, you know, I know Trump made a point of blaming Obama. I guess he'd forgot he'd been president for three years. But that was we needed to keep up those stockpiles. Um, so that wasn't a supply chain issue. That was a stockpile issue. Now, when we ask about the supply chains in the pandemic, we've had spot shortages, but frankly, I think our supply chains have held up remarkably well, because we're looking at a once in a century worldwide pandemic. And for the most part, I mean, I know there's issues in many countries around the world, but here in the United States, people are getting their food for the most part, they're getting something they need. I know there's exceptions that, you know, I, I went to the store and I couldn't get the brand of rice I wanted. Well, you know, it wasn't a tragedy, but you know, that was, that was a supply chain issue. But for the most part, I think our supply chains have held up pretty well. So the the, the argument that, oh, this exposed our, the fragility of our supply chains, you have really extreme events. You're not going to have any supply chain that will fully be protected. Um, now, in the case of the drugs with India, I, I guess I'm kind of agnostic on that. We need diverse sources. And just to make kind of the obvious point, we're going to see supply chains, we're going to see uh, producers shut down in the United States. So we just had the hurricanes hit uh louisiana well much of our energy production In some sense maybe that's a good thing we can't get oil you know that that may not be a bad thing we should be consuming less oil but uh but in any case point is that was a, a supply chain disruption that was just domestic and that's going to happen so we're going to have flooding we're going to have hurricanes we're going to have forest fires earthquakes and if our, our supply chains are all domestic well some of that's going to hit domestically as well So what we really need are diverse sources, um, some of which are in the United States, some of which are not. So the fact that they're producing in India isn't necessarily a problem in my view. What you want to make sure is that you have diverse sources.
0: All right. Well, uh, Dean Baker, thank you so much for taking time uh, and being generous with your time with us today. Really uh, appreciated the conversation.
10: Well, thanks a lot for having me on. And again, I I really appreciate this segment on on, on overtime. It's a very important that hasn't gotten nearly enough attention.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. And everyone, please check out his latest book. It's titled Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. Thanks again, Dean. Thanks. All right. We've got a little uh, little time left to do some super chats. So why don't we bring on the homie Kale?
8: Hey, what's up? Hey. Yeah. Um, so I'm here because if people have questions, please send them in now. Um, I have a one- question for the chat. Could you tell that my dog was, like, freaking out while I was doing
9: my
1: decode segment? And I no, was, like, I was just trying to keep it together. Was I being a total pro by, like, just continuing... To soldier yes. on while my dog was like having an absolute panic attack. Okay, good, good, it, good. It was it
0: was impressive, but like to a trained eye, um, I could tell you yeah. were freaking out internally. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
8: you did a very good job. Although there were a couple moments of like grabbing dog and yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> going slightly off frame. Yeah,
8: yeah, yeah. yeah. Now no, I, I have her here. Yeah, You're being, a <laughs> You're
0: being a bad She's girl. She's so cute. <laughs>
8: Uh, but yeah, if you have questions, this is, this is your moment. This is where we highlight you because you matter to us as our audience. (laughs) (laughs) And and we want (laughs) to (laughs) answer. You do. I'm not being, did I sound insincere?
0: No, not at all. You sounded super genuine. (laughs) (laughs)
8: Um, yeah, it's, um, I want to, I do want to appreciate, uh, Dean's interview, because I think it is really tough to try to like cover, uh, these issues of like how the actual global economy works in, in its complexity without, um, without either getting like just stupidly boring or without reducing it all into like, uh, these very kind of like personal, um, terms where it's, you know, one of the, one of the worst things that, uh, conservatives also often do to, to, uh make the case for austerity for instance is to say well it's just like a household you know we the, the yeah. government's budget yeah. tighten your can't... belt yeah tighten your belt kale yeah yeah,
1: yeah. it's so, like
0: balancing your checkbook yeah
1: yeah so same thing it's, wow that's an old school reference and no no millennial mm-hmm. has balanced a checkbook ever
0: yeah i know like do checkbooks even exist um yeah, but you right. know it's like the same like thought like you know income comes in income goes out like but that's not the way uh Household finance is different from what's going on in the federal government.
8: Yeah. Uh, all right. Um, and international trade and, and competition is like incredibly. I mean, in some ways, like it, it's it's complex, and in some ways, it's actually economists uh, will end up like they'll make it even more complex than it needs to be in the wrong ways. Where um, international competition is not really that different than domestic competition. Um, like this is like a lot of, uh, like the classical argument about trade when it comes to, um, like what you're going to learn in an economics department is well, and, you know, in a country there's like, you know, the, the big and the strong win out and the losers die. But when it comes to international competition, actually, because of, um, you know, comparative advantage, the, the small countries actually can have a chance of, of coming up because what they should do is just specialize in your and what makes you special, you know, like, if like you'd have a bunch of land, then like you be, you make, make use of that. If you have like wine or like grapes, like make wine. If you have like minerals, mine them and it'll all work out, but it's not at all how it actually works that um, and I'm skipping over a ton of stuff, but like, it's just, it's not, it, it, it is the fact that like globally, uh, you know, it's not States versus States. It's capitalists versus capitalists. And if you know, stronger capitalists are always going to win. And so, yeah you know anyways um jerry ty had said i can hear the dog i don't mind it nando's a pro and nando's dog is really cute um i agree with uh two of those three statements no they're all (laughs) it's all right (laughs) um lj one biology does in fact matter um yeah yep last chance guys we have so many things to offer you right now and you can ask us any question
0: Well, while we're waiting, um, let me just. We're so bad with communicating stuff uh, with the audience. So I want to make sure I communicate this ahead of time. So I'm going to be out, unfortunately, for two weeks in a row. Um, I'm going to be debating uh, Ben Shapiro before the Chamber of Commerce. So enemy territory, <laughs> but it's yeah. looking forward to it. You're going um, into the
1: lion's den and uh, I don't want to let you go I alone. I want to go with you just to provide I wish more. you could. Into the fucking, debating Ben Shapiro inside the chamber of commerce. It's like, you know, yeah. you're going into the halls of Mordor uh, to fight Sauron or whatever with a little fucking, yeah, you can't go yeah. in there. Well, I guess Frodo went alone and he won. So um, I will
0: say like this show you know, this show has really, really helped me um, explore some of the areas that I wasn't so strong in, like when it comes to the economy or policy. And, you know, the debate is really like capitalism versus socialism. I think that's going to be the the gist of it. Um, and yeah, I just I love to be I love the ability to do what we do here and just like do Socialism has guys. never
1: worked anywhere. It's been tried. It's, been, it's never <laughs> worked. Socialism yeah. has never worked.
0: Yeah, I know. I like that's definitely going to be one of the talking points. Um, so I yes. got to be ready for that. Um, and you know, do you and want to turn to Venezuela? Venezuela is going to come up. I'm going to bring up the Nordic countries or Scandinavian countries, and he's going to claim that they're not actually socialists at all. Like you know, it's going to be or this- that they're
1: small. And the other one that right. they say is that they're so small and homogenous, which the homogenous yeah. thing is overstated for sure there's like more not
0: only that i mean like even if that were true like in terms of the countries being homogenous oh so you're just saying that the only reason why um these policies are successful is because it's all white people and right like people are inherently awful vicious tribal and like wouldn't want a better society where everyone wins okay that's
8: that's the uh it's it's like the the right wing i can't do the handshakes i've you know, a left and a right mm-hmm. hand, but if I had two different or two of the same hand, I'd be able to do a proper handshake, but it's the, yeah. it's the right wingers and like the liberal grad students coming together of like brown people are different than white people and can't understand right, democracy right. and yeah. rationalism. And it's <laughs> so gross. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: And then the, um, the week after I'm gonna be at a wedding. Um, so I'm gonna miss you guys, but uh, we're still gonna have awesome episodes. Uh, someone's gonna fill in for me. So just wanted to let yeah. you
8: know. Also, like the on the Venezuela thing, like Venezuela is a perfect example of like like Venezuela is an economy that's almost entirely built off of oil. Like they don't yeah, have exactly. an yep. economy outside of oil for the most like a comparative, like developed uh, economy in the way that like Western Europe or the U.S. has a developed full economy, um, even if it obviously comes at the expense of you know most working people, obviously. But like when when you know oil prices are good, Venezuela's you know can actually Doing fund okay. its programs, and when it's down, it's screwed. And so like that's because yeah. it's subjected to like global capitalism. Like that's just market competition at a global scale. Like, interesting. That's Speaking the. Speaking
1: of which the the part of the segment that I left out but I thought about including him but it was just too much of a tangent is that in the heydays of Chavez in Venezuela um, when oil prices were up to be fair but you know Chavez was also just a more effective uh, leader in general he instituted the Petro Caribe program in which he uh, essentially like gave out uh, aid to a bunch of Caribbean countries including Haiti um, and uh, and and Haiti was you know, benefited tremendously off of that, enjoyed a period of like relative stability. Um, and then our good friend uh, Hillary Clinton and our other good friend Bill Clinton intervened uh, to uh, block the Petro Pariba program into Haiti. Um, this was like revealed in all the Weekly Leaks cables of 2011. Um, and then, yeah, that the large part of the Haitian political crisis has to do with that. Um, you know, yeah. Some are saying,
8: yeah. And, so and the saying. model. Just for the record, yeah. Uh, Rahm Emanuel, Bill and Hillary, and Kissinger are not friends of the show. Just in case there's some confusion <laughs> so in the my, chat, they're just my, keeps... They're just my personal friends. Oh. Yeah, Nando Nando keeps trying to bring more people into the circle, and, and we gotta <laughs> we gotta put up some some hard boundaries on this one. You um, got
0: to build a broad coalition, <laughs> folks. Come on, no, just kidding. <laughs> uh, you
8: know. Well, it's just, it's just my friends. Like
1: we hang out. Like we may disagree politically, but like you know, you it doesn't matter if you know. Like you shouldn't just like hang out with people that you agree one hundred percent politically with. It's fine to have yeah uh, people that you disagree with politically as your friends. And I just I hang out with the Clintons and Henry Kissinger uh, and Rahm Emanuel all the time. Like they're they come over to my house on Friday nights. That, that's yeah. just the thing that we do. Okay
8: sometimes nando's chilling with bill hillary and kissinger over on little saint james island and it's not awkward yeah it's cool it's fine no it's get along. cool
1: it's totally fine Total besties. it's totally yeah. fine but did you guys see the bill gates's uh interview um on pbs and they asked him about epstein no, no. oh my god what oh happened? you got uh, i wish we could like pull it up quickly uh I could probably send it to Kale. I don't know how long it takes to upload one of these things, uh, but it's just like, it's, it's worth just it's reacting. It, right it, right and now, if you haven't yeah. seen it, what? Let's not
8: do it now, but but describe it. Oh,
1: fine. Well, it, it's, it's just like he, um, they're like, um, they're like, uh, you know, the woman's like, she's like the, she's like the, the, the anchor of PBS news hour, like the most, you know, like not threatening. Uh, and she's like, well, uh, you know what did you know what's going on with like all these meetings with uh with Epst- with Epstein over the years, even after he was a convicted you know sex trafficker and something. He's like, well, I made a mistake. Uh, you know, he had access to donors that oh, I right, didn't right. have let's, let's uh, do it. access to.
8: <laughs> I'm gonna <do> it. <laughs> okay. You found yeah, it. That, yeah. Yeah.
9: Okay. You
4: nice. had a number of meetings with Jeffrey Epstein who when you met him 10 years ago, he was convicted of soliciting prostitution from minors. What did you know about him when you were meeting with him, as you've said yourself, in the hope of raising money?
6: Uh, you know, I had dinners with him. Uh, I regret doing that. He had related. <laughs> uh, Just wait for it. Just wait. Uh, people, for it. He said, you know, would give to global health, which is a uh, interest I have, you know, not nearly enough philanthropy goes in that direction. Uh, you know, those meetings were, were a mistake. They didn't result in, uh, what he purported and I cut them off. You know, that goes back a long time ago now. Uh, there's, you know, so there's nothing new on that.
5: It was so does he, you can, <laughs> what does what he really no, no, regret no, no.
1: for? Wait, wait. First of all, you got to keep going. But second of all, I just love the idea that Bill Gates wouldn't have access to, like, some donor of, like, interested in global health. Oh, Bill Gates, like, he can't just get anyone on the phone? Like, he can't get the guy on the phone? He's Epstein to get him on the phone? Okay, but just keep playing, because the real scary part is coming up. Right.
4: reported that you continue to meet with him over several years um, and that were <laughs> the number of meetings. Um, what did you do when you found out about his background?
6: Well, you know, I've said I regretted having those dinner, uh, and there's nothing absolutely Is
4: there a lesson for you or anyone else looking, looking
6: at this? <laughs> well, he's dead, so uh, <laughs> generally you always have to be careful. Uh, Look at his little and, smile. You
0: know, the, the, wow. That's he knows.
8: He knows very
6: what happened. He knows what happened! very proud of the work of the Foundation. Uh, you know, I, that's that's what I get. Look at that evil grin!
0: Oh my god, it's so yeah, creepy. Wow. Did he not order the
6: hit on
1: Epstein? He <laughs> must have ordered the hit on Epstein. I don't know if I'm going to get Jack, uh, Jackman in trouble by like wildly speculating, but come on. That is like... So, well, he's dead, so... <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
8: Wow, like, that was yeah, like, I'm
1: an evil villain. Well, he's dead.
8: Well, <laughs> and on to the next one, right?
1: Yeah. Wow. I mean, uh, I, I you know, uh, the, the fact that this guy was the face of like the vaccine thing, uh, was just a great <laughs> call helpful. from everyone around. Yeah. A great yeah. call. Like, oh, yeah. You know, anyone who's like vaccine skeptic, uh, skeptical is going to like, oh, well, Bill Gates is the guy pushing it. Yeah. Uh, mm, yeah. Maybe. Maybe no, maybe not the guy who was hanging
8: out with Epstein and, you know, uh, stole all his money and all that shit. I mean, if you're a billionaire hanging out with like other extremely wealthy people, it's Russian roulette, whether or not it's a pedophile. It just, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, honestly, like, this is what I, when I tell people is that like, it it makes a certain amount of sense because like at a certain point you, you gotta, you got, you know, you get tired of the same old, you know, the same old Swedish model over and over again you need to you need oh. to up the Annie and get something you know get something a little bit more get those juices flowing <laughs> god
8: <laughs> again you know nando please keep that within your circle of friends uh, Yes, yeah, right, right we don't want that on this kissinger
1: show. really likes to get his juices flowing uh oh, but yeah god. that interview that interview was just like what the fuck (laughs) it's like well he's dead so (laughs) that
2: was crazy yeah i hadn't seen that
8: mike myers playing bill gates (laughs) (laughs) oh god um there was a couple other questions here and there uh i'm gonna be honest there was there was some better than others um there was Some one. were better
0: than others, folks. <laughs> Some were better than name, others. Name. All right,
8: last one, last one. This was a good one from <laughs> okay. Mary. Mary. Mary's uh, a very, uh, one of our better viewers, if I have to say so. Um, Mary says, how did you make the turn left Anna Nando Kale influences?
0: Oh, I mean, I've uh, talked about this a lot, um, but I'll, I'll tell the story again. I mean, it was one person at first, and then uh, Nando joined in, and it was Michael Brooks. Um it was such a perfect, uh, situation because, okay, let me give you guys a backstory. I met Nando when me and John Iderola from TYT, uh, signed on to do a show with Fusion during the 2016 election. Nando was working at Fusion at the time. And so that's how we met. And I didn't know, <laughs> I know this is going to sound really funny. I didn't know I was a lib, right? Like, I didn't know yeah. it. I thought like, I'm like, what's, wait, yeah. what's wrong with my politics? There's nothing wrong. So I, I kept like getting into these like heated debates with Nando, which I loved because Nando was one of the rare people that like, to his point earlier, I could debate with him and disagree with him. And then once we're done debating, we're good friends. In fact, like I barely knew him and I invited him to my wedding. I was like, this guy's great. I love him. I'm going to have him at my wedding. And then like, I don't know, a year later, I got close with Michael Brooks and then I didn't know that. Michael and I shared a mutual friend, Nando. And so at that point, Michael Brooks had already started getting me like not I don't know if it was intentional, but I started to get further and further to the left through our conversations and through watching his show. And then once me, Nando and Michael started hanging out and having these kinds of conversations and like more detail, I, it just started to push me further and further to the left. Um, so yeah that that's that's basically it
1: you guys were libs but you supported bernie you know like it was like you guys were good libs. you know what i mean it was like that's why I was always like you it was like you know john uh, John, good libs you know you guys are good libs there's there's something to be said about the good libs they're just so rare um so
0: let me just add something to that like what you guys did because i want to be very specific about what you and michael did you, got, you guys had me look at politics through a Marxist perspective. And that was the difference, really, right? Like, I, I started to see things through a Marxist lens. And I think that kind of it, it helped to like, it helped me to articulate why I support the policies I support why I supported Bernie, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, anyway.
1: It's just an analytical framework. It's helpful. Exactly. It's it's yeah. helpful as an analytical framework. People peop like the Ben Shapiros of the world think it's like a uh, um see it mostly uh, or or categorize it, characterize it mostly as a sort of uh blueprint uh for a utopian society that is kind of full fool, foolhardy and uh, naive uh and shit like that. Um And really the vast majority of it is just like an analytical framework to, to analyze the current world under capitalism. Like, that's just what it is. It's just, um, so it's a tool, uh, to, to look at the world. Um, I, I came to the left, um, through wars stuff, you know, the Iraq war just struck me as a, um, just such an obvious crime, um, you know, I remember getting into arguments, I came about it, like, at first, just kind of very simple minded, you know, like, just kind of like, why, like, just from like, the why are we doing this um, mm-hmm. point of view, and no one could ever give you a good answer. Um, and then it just became very clear, especially when I started when I went to Spain, um, one summer, and I started seeing uh, images on the on like the nightly news, like on the six o'clock news, uh, I remember I was like hanging out with my uncle who would always watch the news. Um, it was like his thing that he did, he watched like the the, the sort of not like cable news like the it's six o'clock gotta, gotta watch the news um and like Red they time. were uh they were you know they showed these images of the iraq war that were like you know a child's hand just sitting in the middle of a street in baghdad you know the kind of thing that in america was censored full-on censored um by republicans essentially like you know the yeah. the 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 right wing was incredibly censorious and the libs went along with it like you couldn't show dead bodies. You couldn't show uh, dead Americans. You couldn't even show caskets of American soldiers. Um, And uh, so that was just a very eye opening uh, experience when you just realized just how propagandized Americans were at the time. Um, in which it was just, it really was just like a very, very crazy time. And at first, like when, you know, you'd go to Europe and you'd, you'd get like a little annoyed cause they were like, you know, just so critical and you're like, shut the fuck up. You know, what the fuck, do you know, you're just jealous. Um, but then, <laughs> then you start to like realize like, you know, maybe they have a point. Yeah. Uh, and especially when you start to see the images, this is when I was like in, you know, 18, 17. Um, and then from there, you know, you read a little Chomsky you know, uh, it's like a gateway drug. Uh, and then,
8: uh, and then you go from there, dude,
1: that's how, that's how it happens.
8: Yeah. I would just, I mean, two, th- two things. One, I would just add that, uh, you know, most people before 2016 in America are libs. It just, it just is the case mm-hmm. that like, I think Bernie largely in part because like, yeah, changed the game. Yeah. Because it was actual real politics. Like
2: mm-hmm. it's
8: really yeah. difficult to like maintain like, socialist left politics when there's nothing going on. Like when there's not, like it's all just like an intellectual pursuit and then you get lost in intellectual debates and it's, it becomes philosophy and not politics. Uh, And so Bernie like forced real political questions in front of us that we had to respond to. And it it made that sort of like, you know, people of all different ages kind of kind of came into their own politically and, and developed their politics over the last five years Because of like the impact that the Sanders, the twin Sanders campaigns provided us to actually like deal with these things, like in real terms. Um, I would just say like, without going to any stories, I mean, I think like the big kind of left turn for me really is like understanding class that I think getting people to think about class. And class not as, like, an attitude. It's not someone who's classy. Yeah. Or it's a not, cultural
1: sensibility. Not a cultural sensibility. Yeah. It's not know, the
8: cars you Not someone you who likes
1: country music. And, right. You know.
8: Yeah. Uh, Thinking of it actually as, like, it's an abstraction, but it's real. And it's about what you own determines what you have to do in your day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month to get by in life. And so the vast majority of us have to work. We have to go and show up at a boss or show up at a workplace for for a boss who then pays us what we need in order to get what we need to survive on the market. And so our dependence on bosses and on markets and on landlords, um, we as the producers in society uh, are, you know, the only thing that we can sell in order to like make this happen is our ability to labor. And then there are those people who don't have to do that, who uh, who make their living off of our ability to labor. And it's a relationship that like, where you can only define workers by defining capitalists and vice versa. Like they, ha- they exist together and they're constantly antagonistic because their interests are diametrically opposed. Because one wants to maximize profit and minimize costs. And one of their costs is... Uh, all, you know our wage yeah well the yeah. wage that we need in order to like make a living in order to like get what we need to live so like thinking of class in terms of those categories and like understanding it like yes again it's not something you can touch it's a social phenomenon but it's real because it's about who owns what um, that's I think that is like the, the first step that I think leads to you know a, a greater kind of socialist and left political perspective but Okay. Last thing before we go is that Wendy had some nice parting words um, for Anna saying that Shapiro was crying about the toxic masculinity Gillette commercial Anna was in. He uh, yep. pronounced Anna's last name weird. Anna made fun of him. Ben will be putting respect on your name after you make him look ridiculous at the. debate. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Wendy. Yeah.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I remember that moment. It was fun. Uh, All
8: right. so that's the show. Thanks, everyone.
0: All right. <laughs> All right guys. Uh, Thank you so much, everyone, for watching. Make sure you like and share the stream. Subscribe if you haven't already. And uh, we'll see you next week with another episode. Love you guys.
1: Later.